In our text today, Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles, walking on water. But it's not really a story about Jesus at all. The protagonist here, the one who we're supposed to relate to, is Peter. Now Peter, as you may have noticed, is a nervous guy. He's demonstrated this over and over again in the Bible. He's unsettled. He's jumpy. He never quite knows what to make of Jesus, and we consistently see him acting out of fear. When the soldiers come for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, Peter draws his sword and, flailing about, cuts off somebody's ear, perhaps less an act of courage than a moment of panic. After Jesus is arrested, Peter denies ever having met him, terrified that he'll be arrested too and suffer the same fates as his friend and savior. And in this story, after attempting to walk on water like Jesus, Peter's fear overtakes him and he begins to sink into the depths of the sea. I've always found that I can relate to Peter better than I care to admit. From the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why are you in doubt? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. They were young and in love, and about to be married in just a couple of months. They sat on the leather sofa in my office, holding hands and making small talk before we started planning the wedding together. I'm from Mattoon originally, down in southern Illinois, the groom-to-be told me. You're from Mattoon? I replied with interest. The very same Mattoon that was terrorized in the 1940s by the so-called 
Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Yeah, he confessed warily, as though he'd been asked this before. I guess that's our claim to fame. Now, being a student of local folklore and urban legends, I was well aware of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. The story of a short man in a gas mask who crept through the bushes in the small town of Mattoon and sprayed toxic chemicals into people's windows while they slept. Now, this was at the height of the Second World War when everyone was on edge and the world was still trying to cope with the advent of chemical weapons. Some believed that the Mad Gasser was a Nazi agent, others a rogue psychopath. There were numerous sightings, but the Mad Gasser was never apprehended, nor was his existence ever proven. No one died in the attacks. Uh, the victims complained of vague illnesses that the police blamed on the fumes of cleaning products or nearby factory smoke. So, you know, what do you think? I asked him. Do you think the Mad Gasser was real? I, I don't really know, he replied, seemingly uninterested in the subject. It was a long time ago, anyway, he continued. So anyway, I, uh, you know, I met Mary here in college, and it was love at first sight. He squeezed his fiancée's hand, and she smiled in return. Well, I don't know if I'd say that, Mary replied playfully, but John won me over. Right, right, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I replied. So, um... So what about the testimony of Mrs. Leonard Burrell on 13th Street, who claimed to have actually seen the Mad Gasser? Or, or the police report filed by Carl and Beulah Cords on September 5th, 1944, after they found a handkerchief soaked in toxic chemicals on their doorstep, laying alongside a mysterious skeleton key and an empty tube of lipstick? Look, I don't know much about any of it. The young man sighed, eager to change the subject. Maybe we should just talk about the wedding. So begrudgingly, that's what we did. But my imagination began to wander, as if intoxicated by strange fumes. There is something captivating about a scary story, whether it's an ancient myth or a bit of local folklore, an urban legend or a great horror movie, these stories have a unique ability to play on our fears, to engage them, to articulate them in ways that we otherwise cannot. The Mad Gasser was, in all probability, a projection of one small town's anxiety about the war and the dangers that faced its young men who were fighting abroad. That masked villain lent a focus to their fear, something frightening to be sure, but something much less frightening than the prospect of losing your son to a mustard gas attack in the Pacific Theater. That's how scary stories work. They offer catharsis, or at least transference, of our deepest anxiety. They help us to express our fear and to cope with it. Nowadays, urban legends are told in dark corners of the internet. One of the most famous of these internet stories is about the so-called Slender Man, a tall and faceless entity with impossibly long arms and a black business suit 
that kidnaps children for unknown and nefarious purposes. But come on. The, the face, the, the long arms, the suit. If that's not a metaphor for the long reach of faceless corporations and their consumer influence on our kids, then I don't know what is. Maybe I'm reading too much into it all. But these are fearful times we live in, and distinctly 21st century fears are plentiful and palpable. Now that being said, these kinds of stories go way, way back. Ancient Jewish folklore is filled with nightmare fuel about vengeful ghosts, vampires, and demons. And one of the oldest and most infamous of these legends is actually about Adam and Eve and Adam's first wife, Lilith. Now this is a rabbinical legend, though she does appear in canonical scriptures referenced briefly by the prophet Isaiah. As the story goes, Adam had another wife before Eve, wife named Lilith, and Adam was cruel to her. He tried to dominate her, as men so often do, and she stood up for herself and fled the garden, refusing to be a part of this abusive relationship. Now, Lilith is often celebrated by women as history's first feminist. Uh, if you've ever heard of the popular music and arts festival, Lilith Fair, that's where the name comes from. But she was not celebrated in ancient folklore. Having fled the garden, she finds a dark cave on the edge of creation, where she meets the demon Asmodeus, and they become partners in crime, their monstrous deeds echoing throughout the annals of ancient Jewish folklore. Lilith and the demon also knew one another in the biblical sense, and she bears him hundreds of demonic, monstrous children. And in an act of vengeance against Adam, she preys upon human men in the night. She was henceforth remembered as a succubus, a demon who seduces men while they sleep, steals their seed to bear more demon children. Now back in the day, many Jews even wore amulets and pendants to ward her off. But this myth speaks volumes about the people who told it and what they feared most. Namely, women. It vilified female sexuality, a fear that persists to this day in patriarchal, uh, patriarchal attitudes that strive to keep women's power in check and their voices silent. History is filled with so many of these legends of the evil temptress across countless cultures. The Greeks had Lamia and Medusa. Beowulf battled with the monster Grendel's evil mother, an alluring sorceress. Just as King Arthur contended with the wiles of Morgan Le Fay, it's a genre unto itself, especially prevalent in male-dominated societies where women are objectified and feared. Now we're having a moment, I think, in today's cultural uh, climate where those narratives are rightly being challenged and new stories are being told. 
where victims of abuse are coming forward with their own stories of trauma. And these stories are terrifying. Most people don't understand why I'm so interested in tales of the macabre. The world is already such a scary place, they tell me. The last thing it needs is more horror. And they're right, of course. This is a world where people are preyed upon, taken advantage of, and abused. It's a world where justice is often meted out by the unjust. A world of partisan toxicity, poison that seeps into our homes and into our lives, creating the delusion that our neighbor is our enemy. It's a world where cancer lurks like a phantom in the shadows, haunting so many lives. It's a world where a young boy my own son's age can die in a freak accident at a birthday party, which happened this week right here in town. Yes, the last thing anyone needs right now is more horror. But ironically, that is exactly why I am drawn to scary stories, because I'm scared. I'm scared all the time. And these narratives help me to handle that fear, like putting on gloves, I can hold it and turn it around in my hands, explore it, because I can't bear to face it head on. They create just enough metaphorical distance for me to be able to cope with the things in this world that frighten me the most. I'm sure a lot of you can probably remember huddling with your friends beneath a pile of sleeping bags at some childhood slumber party, one of them telling a story with a flashlight aimed at her face to lend it a more ghoulish visage. I don't personally have any memories of this because, you know, I wasn't invited to any slumber parties, um, didn't have any friends, but I mean, that was a thing, right, that people did? I think I saw it on TV a few times. Anyway, one of the kids would spin some yarn about a guy with a hook for a hand stalking young lovers on the highway or maybe a ghost that haunts the local cemetery. And sometimes when the moon is full and the night is dark, you can still hear the spirit whispering. Adolescents seem especially drawn to stories like these, I think, because adolescents is terrifying. But as an adult, reading the news can induce at least as much existential dread. You don't need a flashlight or a creepy urban legend to scare people. All you need is a newspaper. The story of Peter trying to walk on water, well, that's, uh, that's actually a pretty scary story, too. The disciples mistake Jesus for a ghost when he's taking a midnight stroll on the Sea of Galilee, but that's actually not the unsettling part. The, the really nerve-wracking scene is when Peter tries to walk on water himself and he begins to sink beneath the waves. And Jesus saves him, of course, but with a rebuke. 
You of little faith, he tells Peter, why did you doubt? Well, wouldn't you? How can you tell someone who's literally stepping out of a boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, not to be afraid? Of course Peter was afraid. Of course he had his doubts. Like I said before, Peter was a pretty insecure guy. And what this story is really about is about a guy stepping out in faith to do God's work in a world where the good guys don't always win and where he will always be out of his depth. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate. Because that sounds like my story, too. And it scares the heck out of me. I want to tell you about the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. The one that really got to me. Came out just a couple of years ago called It Follows. Now, the film follows a teenage girl named Jay, who for reasons I won't get into, becomes the victim of a terrible curse. And throughout the movie, she's relentlessly pursued by a malevolent entity that is trying to destroy her. Sometimes it looks like a stranger. Sometimes it looks like a friend. But it never speaks, and it shows no emotion. And while it walks very slowly, in measured, plodding footsteps, it is always walking towards her, no matter where she is. She becomes terrified of large crowds where this thing can easily blend in. She can run, even drive for miles, maybe buy herself a day or two of relief. But it always follows, and it always will. The movie scares me, much like Peter's story, because it feels like my own. My greatest fear, I have to confess, is a fear of inevitable failure. However much I get right, I'm eventually going to get something wrong, and I'm afraid that it's going to be something big. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to permanently mess up my kids. I'm going to screw up my marriage. I'm going to run this church that's been entrusted to me into bankruptcy and ruin. Like Peter, I feel in over my head, and that fear stalks me relentlessly, follows, because that's what fear does. I had one of those preaching dreams last night, sort of the cost of doing business when you're a pastor. Um, usually I find myself in these dreams rambling until one at a time everyone slowly gets up and just leaves. <laughs> Not so different from a regular Sunday, really, you know. But in this one, this one was different. I kept getting drowned out by this loud music that was being piped into the sanctuary. No one could figure out where it was coming from and no one could make it stop. And it's actually a lot what it feels like preaching nowadays. You're always competing with the noise of the world, and the cacophony is deafening. These past couple of weeks, Lord knows, we have been drowning in it. And as I talk about this movie, It Follows, I, I realize that it's also a story about trauma. 
That's not my story to tell, but it belongs to countless women and children who have been abused and raped and terrorized. And that trauma follows them like a specter. And like the male gaze, it never really goes away. I can't tell you not to be afraid. I know you're going to be afraid sometimes. Maybe all the time. But that doesn't mean our fears will come to pass. It doesn't mean that we can't be brave, even when they do. And that's the lesson of the scripture, that we don't have to go through it alone. Peter was terrified, but he still stepped out onto the water, and Jesus was with him, even as God is with each and every one of us, even as we are with each other here in community. Peter doubts Jesus, doubts if he can save him or this broken world. But Jesus is there with Peter to keep him from drowning, to hold his hand, to keep him afloat, to whisper reassurance into his ear, like a father teaching his child how to swim. And sometimes when the moon is full and the night is so dark, you can still hear the spirit whispering that holds us until dawn. Amen.